0: Hi, it's Rachel Martin with NPR News. And you know what? We're doing something new, and we want you to be part of it. It's called Up First. It's the morning news podcast from NPR. It's a way for you in about 10 minutes or so to get up to speed on the news of any given day, the most important stories, the biggest ideas, the stuff you need to know as you go through your day. Up First, it starts April 5th. You can get it at NPR One or anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Hey, real quick, here's a question for you. How do baseball players, Major League Baseball players, get to their Major League Baseball games? Like, do they take a limo? Driving a fancy sports car? Maybe a chopper? I guess if you're rich and famous, like Ichiro Suzuki or something, you can get there however you want. What about the players who aren't Ichiro? The ones who just got called up from the minors? That was Sean Doolittle. He's a relief pitcher for the Oakland A's. Back in 2012, he was in the minors in Sacramento, and he found out he was about to be a real-deal Major League Baseball player, but they needed him there now. He flew from his road game into Oakland International Airport that afternoon. The game was about to start. It was kind of like something out of a movie. He didn't have a ride or anything, so he grabbed the first cab he could.
2: We get to the gate, and and I'm like, tell the guy I'm a player. And the, the security guard's like, okay, like, do you have ID? I was like, no, I'm like, I'm on the team. Like, I I just got called up. I just got here. We were there, like, blocking traffic. Like, people come, were trying to come into the ballgame, and there was this, this cab blocking everybody from their tailgates. And I... I I was like, I've come so far. Like, I'm, I'm at the stadium. Just let me in.
1: It's bullseye. Coming up, just in time for opening day, it's an all-baseball episode of our show. I'll talk with Sean Doolittle about the day he got called up, about his switch from first base to pitching, and the moment that it dawned on him. Being injured
2: is terrible. I quickly realized that the most difficult part of a rehab process is the mental side of it. You can get your body to do the exercises that you have to do as part of your rehab program, but a lot of times like you might set goals for yourself, like I want to be running by this date, and then then that date comes and goes and you're not ready to run yet. It can drag on you mentally. Then Tabitha Soren.
1: She used to be a newscaster on MTV. Now she's a photographer. She spent almost 15 years following the careers of a handful of young players. It's a really moving, unique collection of photographs. And she says that part of the reason for that is that she actually doesn't care about baseball.
0: If I was a fan, I would have been distracted by the home run, the fly ball, you know, all of the exciting stuff that's happening on the field.
1: Plus Josh Cantor. He plays organ for the Boston Red Sox and for the biggest baseball-themed indie rock band in the world. He'll tell us about the song that changed his life. Finally, I'll talk about why the myth of baseball, as phony as it is, still means something. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Things are a little different this week on the show. Baseball just opened its 2017 season... We're putting together an all-baseball episode. First up, Sean Doolittle. He's a relief pitcher with the Oakland A's. He's been on the team since 2012. The A's were division winners that year. He was an all-star in 2014, which is the kind of thing that would be a career highlight for any player, but especially for one like Sean. A few years earlier, he was a hitter. Sean's also one of the nicest people in the game, like the kind of player you hear about and you want to root for even if he isn't on your team. He works with veterans groups. He's spoken out publicly for LGBT rights. He hosted a Thanksgiving dinner with a bunch of Syrian refugees. ESPN asked if he was the most interesting person in baseball, and they were right to ask it. Now, I have to admit here, I am an A's fan. First and foremost, a San Francisco Giants fan, but second and second most, an A's fan. And the other day, I wrote a tweet, and Sean Doolittle faved it. I thought, Sean Doolittle from the Oakland A's? So I sent him a note, and he agreed to come on the show. Sean was a hot prospect with the A's as a first baseman. Great hitter. But then he missed most of two years with injuries. And when he came back, the A's said, Sean, you can't do this anymore. Do you want to try pitching? He got up on the mound, and all of a sudden he realized he could throw in the high 90s.
3: Do little in to face the left-handed hitting Brad Miller. Fastball, and that was quick work of Brad Miller. Two sliders, a fastball, and that will do it. No, six. Slider and a good one. So. <laughs> didn't expect that coming. Swing and a miss. But.
4: And he threw it right by him. How about that? One?
3: Two-two picks. Swing and a miss. He struck it out. Got it on the inside corner. Swinging. And the Angels make some noise in the night, but Doolittle
1: finally shuts the door. Sean Doolittle, welcome to Bullseye. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
2: Hey, man. Thanks for having me. I guess this is a dumb question, but did you always want to be a professional baseball player? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, ever since I was a little kid, that's all I wanted to do. Um, I played all sports growing up. Um, Started with T-ball and played soccer in the fall, a little bit of football, basketball in the winter. But... um, You know, by the time I got to high school, baseball had become my favorite because it it came the most natural to me. So this is definitely a dream come true to be playing in the major leagues. Did you ever think when you were
1: 17 or 19 years old about how much of your life you had poured into this thing that basically could disappear if you, you know— Got in a car accident or
2: rolled over your ankle wrong, or something like that <laughs> yes definitely i was I was really aware of that, especially being a pitcher, um, just the you know inherent volatility of being a pitcher the the occupational hazards that come with being a pitcher, the risk of arm injury and stuff like that and that 's another reason why it was important for me to go to school um, being able to go to a school like the University of Virginia and start working towards my degree, I left after my junior year. So I have three years of college under my belt. And at some point I'll go back and finish. But like you said, to have that safety net in place, to already have a, you know, a head start, a big chunk of of college already under my belt, you know, that definitely helps that contingency plan and keep that safety net in place for life after baseball.
1: It's interesting that you say that, you know, I I interview a lot of you know, artists of various kinds. One of the things that some people say is how important it is not to have a contingency plan because if you don't have a contingency plan, you can't quit. <laughs> and and I wonder how you plan for a life without a thing that is so central to your life. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think
2: I think one of the things that makes it a little bit different than – maybe an artist or a musician is that we have a very short window during which we can play this game. You know, there's physical limitations that will only allow you to play the game for so long, Um, even if you have a a track record of staying healthy. Um, So we realize that we're going to be former players a lot longer than we are a current player. So I think for a lot of guys, it's important to have that balance to have like a contingency plan in place or to have something set up for life after uh, after you're done playing. Is it something that you think about now? I feel like I do think about it, perhaps more than most guys, um uh, because I took such an interesting route um to get to the big leagues. Um I was drafted as a hitter actually in 2007 by the A's and you know, 2009 I'm in AAA, I'm getting close to get to the big leagues and I start having injury issues. I miss all of 2009 and 2010 with a knee injury. I miss uh, 2011 with a wrist injury. At that point, I didn't play for three full seasons. And um, I was very close to, I don't know actually if I was close to retiring, but I was really thinking about uh, going back to school perhaps and and continuing to further my education and and, uh, at least give myself options and keep myself... Mentally occupied um, as I stared down another rehab process. And um, that's ultimately, I I switched to pitching during that summer of 2011 and um, made the big leagues by 2012. And um, I think it gave me a different perspective. And I experienced how quickly this game can be taken away from you. So it, it helps me definitely appreciate everything that I have experienced at the big league level that much more while also being aware of, you know, man, what would I do if uh, if I wasn't playing baseball? It it, it helped me. It, it really changed the way I think. You were a star hitter, not
1: only in college, but uh, in the minor leagues, the first few years of your minor league career. You had been added to the A's 40-man roster, which is the sort of extended roster of the major league team. It, it meant that you uh, it, it meant that you were ticketed for the big leagues at some point, or at least the A's thought you were. And that's when you started getting hurt. What, what was the first
2: injury that happened to you? In May of 2009, I was playing right field for our, our AAA affiliate. We were in Las Vegas, and um, I moved to catch a fly ball. I was playing in the outfield, and the guy hit a, hit a fly ball. And when I took a step over to you know start to get it, I, uh, I partially tore uh, my patella tendon, and that began the um, string of injuries for me. Um, that was a month into the 2009 season, and it took the rest of that year and all of 2010 to finally get it healthy again. Um, it took two different surgeries. I had no idea at the time, but that was kind of the beginning of, of what uh, ultimately led me to pitching and, and to the big leagues. Were you thinking about the consequences when you were walking
1: in and, and you knew that you couldn't you couldn 't do much with your with your knee
2: no not really i i I still didn't think it was going to be something um, that ended up being as serious as it was um, they They had their team doctor come over and look at it, and he just thought that it was really bad tendonitis I remember, and uh, we went back to um, that was the, the tail end of a road trip. And we ended up going back to Sacramento, um, a day after that. And I I got an MRI and even even then I was, I wasn't expecting the MRI to show anything, uh, serious or, or show any red flags. And, um, so about a week after the injury happened, when I got the MRI results, I was really surprised that it showed what it did you know, it started uh, a lengthy rehab process that, that took, uh, you know, the rest of that summer. Uh, we tried to rehab it without surgery. I ended up getting surgery finally in October. You know, I, I had no idea that it was going to become such a difficult injury to come back from. Did you, like, call your parents or something? Yeah, I mean, I, I called my parents. My my parents have uh, have always been... They've been incredibly supportive uh, ever since I was little. And uh, we talk. I talk to my mom or my dad or sometimes both after just about every game. So they definitely noticed when I I was pulled from the game. Um, Yeah, I called them. And I think at the time it was probably something that I was like, hey, I I don't think this is a big deal. I think it's pretty precautionary. I might miss a little bit of time, but, yeah, I, I really didn't know how serious it was. What made you feel like it
1: was serious? At what point in this process of that ended up being years did you think that this might actually be an
2: existential threat to your baseball career? That probably came later in the summer, uh, maybe even into the fall. This might be because I was, at the time, I was 22. Uh, I'd never experienced an injury before. Maybe it was a little bit naive. I kept. You know, telling myself that I was going to be fine, I was going to bounce back, no problem. So for the rest of, for the whole summer of two thousand nine, I, I I spent rehabbing it because we really wanted to avoid surgery. And so I go through this whole rehab process during two thousand nine, and and by you know October, uh, I'm trying to, I'm I'm starting to play again, um, and I'm trying to jumpstart my comeback to get ready to make sure that I'm ready for the beginning part of the next season. When I was trying to do that, when I was trying to hit, trying to shift my weight onto my left side, um, it, it, it never, never really felt right. Um, and not having been hurt before, I really didn't have anything to compare it to. So I wasn't really sure what was going on. But it, at that point, after, after that much time of rehab and, and having it not bounce back the way I thought, um, it started to, uh, it really started to raise some red flags. Was that scary for you? Yeah, a little bit. It was more frustrating than anything else though. I was putting all this time and effort into this rehab process and we were trying all these new things, uh, these new uh, exercises or I would would be able to pass some of the tests and I would start making some progress and then I would have a little bit of a setback and I would, you know, and I, I quickly realized that the most difficult part of a rehab process is the mental side of it. You can get your body to do the uh, exercises that you have to do as part of your rehab program. But, you know, a lot of times like you might set goals for yourself, like, you know, in a knee rehab, I want to be running by this date. And then, and then that date comes and goes and you're not ready to run yet. And it, it, it can drag on you mentally and, and really bring you down because you spend so much time every day getting to the field early and working with the trainers to, uh, try to get your body back to playing you know meanwhile you're on the table and of course you're happy for your friends that that they're out there and they're playing and they're continuing to you know climb the ladder and you're getting passed by um some of these guys that that you know that you can play with that you feel you feel like you can um at least compete on the same level as these guys and you're watching them from a training room table you know get their shot and and uh, accomplish what they've been working towards and um that mental roller coaster can really get to you. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is
1: Sean Doolittle. He's a left handed relief pitcher for the Oakland Athletics. By the time you decided to become a pitcher again, you had been in professional baseball for a number of years. You had entered professional baseball as a college player, so you had entered relatively late. And you were almost at the point where you have to decide whether you are going to continue to be a professional baseball player. You know, you you had a pretty small window to figure out if pitching was something that was going to work for you. And I wonder if there was a point when you were throwing long toss or when you first started pitching that it occurred to
2: you, oh, wait, maybe this actually works. It's interesting that you said that because... um... The day before I was approached by Keith Lipman that who asked me if I wanted to start throwing, I had called my agent to see what the process would be like if I wanted to go back to school and start taking classes again because mentally the timing of that wrist injury was really tough. I was um I had been given the green light that you know 2 days from then I was going to go back to Sacramento to rejoin the team as a first baseman, so I was about to be healthy again and then I had the wrist injury happen but throughout the summer i was surprised at the way that i was able to you know throw strikes and repeat some of the mechanic uh, aspects of my delivery in a way the the wrist injury was a blessing in disguise because it gave me the it gave me time it bought me time i knew that i wasn't going to play at all in 2011 so i wasn't rushing for anything um, I knew we had months to to mess around and see if this was going to be something that I could maybe do at some point in my career. And you know, I can remember from the first time I got on the mound, I was able to to consistently throw strikes. Had had that been the case when five years earlier, when you were in college? Yeah, locating, knock on wood, was something that um, was one of my was one of my strengths. Um, but what came this time around was a little bit more velocity, you know, from the time I pitched in college until this point in 2011, I had put on, uh, i had put on a lot of weight. I had grown up. I'd, I had trained for four years as a first baseman. I was trying to hit for power. Um, so I was adding as much muscle, uh, as I could. And, and so I think that helped me repeat my delivery, but it also allowed me to throw a little bit harder. Um, but the weird thing was in the back of my head, um, I don't ever remember thinking, oh my gosh, this is going to be my ticket to the big leagues. This is my golden ticket. I was really at a point where I didn't have any expectations for it. I was just looking for a way to get off the disabled list and get back onto the field. And I think- You just kind of wanted to do that thing that you like doing, which is playing baseball. I missed it. I missed it. And I was willing to do anything that I had to, to get back out there. And You know, I didn't want to look back in in 15 or 20 years and say, man, like, I I wish I would have tried that or I wish I would have thrown myself into that a little bit more. And the way that I was able to do it that summer, um, making the switch, was um, we went all in. I I had help from Ryan and my coach, Garvin, and I remember uh, in Instructional League in the fall of 2011 – um, at this point, I had thrown one professional inning as a pitcher at the very, very end of the 2011 season, and uh, I was throwing 95, 97 miles an hour. And it was, it, it was really weird because I'd never been put on a radar gun up to that point. I, I didn't know how hard I was able to throw.
1: I'll continue my conversation with Sean Doolittle in a minute. When he made the majors, he thought he was pitching that first night, and for reasons he'll explain, that was a terrifying prospect. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Blue Headphones. For 20 years, your favorite artists have used Blue microphones in the studio. Now, Blue's unique headphone design brings the sonic truth to your ears so you can hear more in your favorite music. Find out why Esquire magazine called them the perfect headphones. Visit the store at bluedesigns.com and use the coupon code NPR2017 for a special price. Blue, hear more. It's Bullseye, I'm Jesse Thorne. Opening day is this week for Major League Baseball. We're doing a special all-baseball edition of Bullseye. My guest, Sean Doolittle. He's a pitcher for the Oakland A's. It must have been strange when you finally walked into a Major League stadium and, you know, the equipment manager handed you a uniform with your name on the back of it, that it came in such a different way than you must have imagined six years previously or five years previously <laughs> when you started playing pro ball?
2: A little bit. Um, you know, one one weird thing about when I got the call to go to the big leagues, I was with our, our AAA team. We were in uh, Tacoma, Washington, and the manager of the AAA team was trying to get in touch with me. He was calling my cell phone, but because it was like it was like nine o'clock in the morning, which for a a baseball player, a minor leaguer, might it, it might as well have been like four in the morning, um, you know? Because after the game, by the time we get home, um, most you know, and then we we finally eat, and then we wind down. You know, you're not going to bed until one or two. So my roommate woke up and, and he was hearing my phone go off and he he woke me up. He said, Hey man, uh, Bushy, our manager, Darren Bush, he said, Bushy's going to call you. Um, you know, you need, he said you need to answer your phone. And, um, you know, he called me and told me that I was going to Oakland and that, that I needed to get, I needed to get changed and get down to the lobby as soon as I could. Cause they had, they had a game that night and they were going to need me for the game. And, uh, so I go downstairs. And by the time I get downstairs, it's like nine thirty, ten o'clock. And, um, uh, you know, the the traveling, the secretary from the A's calls me and tells me that uh, my flight's not till like three o'clock. So I was just like, I just went to the airport because I was like, I don't want to miss my flight. You know, I, and uh, I was, uh, I was that excited um, about it. And uh, finally getting to the Coliseum in, in Oakland, it, it gave me chills because when I was a kid, we had season tickets to the A's. Um, My dad was in the Air Force and and we were stationed at Castle Air Force Base in Atwater, California, which is, it's now a a museum. It's no longer uh, an active air base. But we had a season ticket package where every weekend we would would drive uh, an hour, hour and a half to A's games. And that was my first experience with baseball. And um, that's when I first started to fall in love with the game. And I mean, I was three, four and five years old, but um so I don't remember a lot of it, but I do remember it and I have all these pictures of me and my brother in decked out nays gear at the Coliseum. And uh, you know, here I was twenty twenty years later, um, you know, getting a chance to put that uniform on and, and go play on that field and it uh it gives me goosebumps still thinking about it. Um, you know, the the Coliseum it might not be the uh the nicest, most state of the art venue in the major leagues but every day that I go out there I can see where we used to sit so it it has a lot of sentimental value to me so the the first time that we pulled up it was a really really powerful experience Do you take a cab to the stadium or someone pick you up <laughs> Yeah I t- I took a cab you know it was really funny because I I got my bags from the from the airport and I, I go out to the taxi stand and you know I I, I Politely tell the you know I'm in a rush I gotta get to the Coliseum at, at this point it was like six o'clock or so we have a seven o'clock game and anyway, he was like I, I gotta go to the Coliseum and so he's like, okay and he goes what entrance do you want me to use I have no, I have no idea like what entrance we're supposed to use um, you know I haven't been there since I was like four and, and uh, you know we get to the gate and and I'm like tell the guy I'm a player and the security guard's like, okay, like, do you have ID? Like, do you have, because we do have, we have ID cards. Um, but you know, I hadn't been there yet, so I didn't have one. So I, I was like, no, i like, I'm on the team. Like I I just got called up. I just got here. We were there for, like blocking traffic. Like people come, we're trying to come into the ball game and there was this, this cab at this, at the, uh, parking lot, you know, blocking everybody from their tailgates and uh, it was me trying to get into the uh, players' parking lot so that I could get into the stadium. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I just imagine you like pulling your Costco card out of your wallet, your AAA card. <laughs> I,
2: I, I was like, I've come so far. Like I'm, I'm at the stadium. Just let me in. Um, it was, uh, it was, it was crazy. What was the first time that you pitched in the majors? Um, I didn't pitch until the next night, you know, that night was, um, I got to this, I I probably got into the locker room and and I got changed, I got settled, I I talked to the manager uh, before the game and he said, you know, you're here because we need you, we need help uh, in the bullpen, we've had some injuries, we've been taxed, the guys have been throwing a lot of innings, so you know we know you're you're rested and and you're ready to go like you've, you you know you we know you got here late but can you still pitch tonight i said absolutely I, I know that they like to get guys feet wet like immediately like right when they get called up because they they like to you know throw them right into the fire kind of uh baptism by fire and so i, I, w- I was in the bullpen that night and the uh, the pitcher that we had going for us jared parker took a no-hitter into into the eighth inning, and uh, we were we were up. We had the game in hand. We were up uh, six or eight nothing at that point, and uh, I was so scared because I thought that my major league debut might have to be like in an effort for a combined no hitter because uh, his his pitch count was getting very high. It was it was up over a hundred pitches in in the seventh and eighth innings, and and uh, you know normally around a hundred they start thinking about taking the guy out and. And so I was sitting there and I'm like the game's in hand like I'm going to ha- they're going to ask me to be a part of a combined no-hitter for in my debut. Uh we were playing the Texas Rangers at the time who who had one of the best offenses in, in the league and uh I was a wreck and uh I did not pitch that night. I uh, I ended up I ended up pitching uh an inning in the third the next night and uh I was I struck out my my the first hitter I faced and uh had that that closed out. That was the third out of the inning and then I, I, I pitched the next inning as well. And it was uh it was very surreal. It was something that I actually had to go back and, and watch on film because I, I didn't remember a lot of it. You're
1: listening to Bulls, I I'm Jesse Thorne. I've got Sean Doolittle here with me, all star pitcher for the Oakland A's. You know, one of the things that you did that I was really touched by a couple of years ago there was some controversy around an LGBT night at the Coliseum and you and your then girlfriend now fiance bought out the unsold tickets to the game in the LGBT night themed sections of the ballpark and gave them to uh community groups uh, LGBT community groups in the bay area and i think when i read that story the thing that struck me the most was not i mean it was a really lovely uh gesture of course and it was a really lovely gesture in the, in the face of um some real weird gross stuff that was going on around that that controversy was was really lousy but the thing that occurred to me was you know i've been a sports fan my entire life i'm from san francisco and grew up in the bay area and i couldn't think of another time that a professional athlete affirmatively <laughs> said something positive about the LGBT community. Like, it occurred to me that my standard of acceptance of LGBT people for athletes was basically not being a bigot, and that really astonished me, you know? It was just something that I hadn't thought about until you did that, and it it was such a remarkable thing for being such an unremarkable thing. I mean, it's, it's not like it was 1983, you know? (laughs)
2: yeah and you know what it it seemed like it was long overdue like that because that was the first time that the A's had announced that they were going to host a pride night and uh, other teams had been doing it for years I think uh, at that point the the Giants might have had uh, might have been doing it uh, for 13 or 15 years and it was exciting that the A's were uh, that the A's were going to do that, and um, you know, some of the initial reaction that we saw on on social media was was not great, and and we just wanted to you know kind of turn a negative into a positive and, and create a space where people felt comfortable and people felt welcome, and um, it, it just none of it sounded sounded right to us. Um, the fact that there were people who were actively like against that uh idea of having a, a pride night and and we wanted to show our support and 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 try to make it you know the night that it was supposed to be where we were we're celebrating uh the LGBT community and and welcoming them and and using baseball as a using sports so many times sports can be like that common thread that common ground that people can find to come together uh, over certain issues. Um, it can be a very powerful vessel for change. And what was really what really struck us, though, was the response that we got from the A's uh, fans and, and the A's community. We said, if you don't want to come, that's okay. We'll buy your tickets, and then we'll donate your tickets to maybe a group or, or some people that, that really want to come. By the end of it, Aaron, my fiancé, had set up a GoFundMe page, and, and we raised over $40,000, and we were able to... Use that to bring out people from different LGBT youth centers uh, in the East Bay and, you know, pay for their transportation and their tickets to the game. And, you know, that night was one of the most fun nights of the year. We scored like 22 runs, and and it was a a blowout win, and people were dancing in the stands, and it was – it it ended up being – it came together, and it was really awesome. I was reading an article about it from when it happened.
1: And one of the quotes that struck me was from the director of an LGBT youth center in the East Bay. What he said was, I guess it never would have occurred to me to call and ask for help from a sports team. And it seemed like part of what made it such a vivid gesture was that it was an affirmative indication of welcoming in a situation that hasn't always been a welcoming place and that hasn't always sort of said out loud, you're welcome here. And that really touched me. I mean, like, you can buy tickets for the boys' club, you know? <laughs> I went to the boys' club in San Francisco. We we got to go to a lot of baseball games for free, <laughs> you know? It was great. But that act of uh, reaching out is kind of an unusual thing.
2: We realized that we had a opportunity to be a, a voice in the community. Um, so many times uh, I've, I've, I've said, I've been so grateful for the way that the A's fans have embraced me and supported me uh, during my career, during my time with the organization. And um, I think when it comes down to it, you know, athletes have a voice if they, ch- if they choose to, to use it, they have a built in platform. If, if they uh, want to speak out uh, on something and, you know it was an opportunity that that i saw you know that that uh aaron and i wanted to welcome these people to the field we wanted uh, i think um you know kind of like what you said uh, um the baseball community had never really i don't know if they they did, i don't really know how to say it but it it was something like i said we, we felt it was long overdue and we couldn't believe that that uh they hadn't done this yet, and when they, when they did do it, we just wanted to be involved to make sure that, that people knew that we supported them and we wanted them to come out and have fun at the stadium and we wanted them to feel welcome and comfortable and be able to feel like uh, we wanted them and, and that we were, uh, we were willing to help them out with it. Well, Sean, I'm so
1: grateful for you to take, for taking time out of spring training to talk to me and I, I wish you so much luck in the in the new season with the A's. It's an exciting team and uh, I'm looking forward to watching a lot of games on my MLB.tv and I'll be rooting for you. <laughs> Thank you very much, man. I appreciate it. Sean Doolittle, catch him at the A's game and off to the Coliseum. Draft him onto your fantasy baseball team. Watch him on television. You can also follow him on Twitter. It's at what would do do D-O-O- D-O. Get it? His name's Doolittle. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Every once in a while on the show, we bring you a segment called The Song That Changed My Life. Usually, it's a chance for us to hear from musicians whose careers were shaped by specific songs or, or music that takes them back to a really specific, poignant moment in their lives. But with the possible exception of... Barry Zito's new solo acoustic singer-songwriter album, there aren't a lot of rock stars in baseball. One exception is Josh Cantor. Josh is the organist for the Boston Red Sox, so if you've been to Fenway Park in the last 14 years or so, that was Josh playing Inagata DeVita on the organ when Koji Uehara warmed up. Josh has also been a member of an indie rock supergroup called The Baseball Project, Alongside some members of REM.
3: You might consult a good drug counselor, in fact, that's what Dr. Kane. Down went Post, down went Morgan, down went Treason. Just went right in the organ. Dance, 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 Tony Perez. But to a Johnny Fitz, that was enough for the rest. can really happened that way.
1: Now, What's the song that changed Josh's life? Well, it was Halo by Beyonce, of course. Josh Cantor.
4: My two favorite things to do are watch baseball games and play organ music. So being uh, the organist for a Major League Baseball stadium is kind of my dream job. I get to spend six months out of every year doing an awful lot of both of my favorite things. I find one of the great uh, joys and challenges of the job is trying to have as many different song ideas as possible ready to go at a moment's notice from game to game and even, you know, from inning to inning and from play to play. So, for example, there was a game last season where the Red Sox were playing against the Oakland Athletics, and the Athletics put a pitcher into the game who was both a lefty pitcher and a righty pitcher, which is extremely unusual. As far as I know, it's maybe only the second time in the last, like, 120 years that this has happened in Major League Baseball. And as he came into the game and took the mound and took his warm-up pitches and was introduced, I played a song called Both Sides Now, which I think was originally written by Joni Mitchell and was a hit song for a few different singers, I think maybe in the late 60s and early 70s. I've
3: looked at clouds from both sides now
4: When I first started the job, most of the song ideas I was generating myself, and I was kind of operating in a vacuum in a, in a way. I didn't wasn't getting a whole lot of feedback. So five or six years ago, I finally decided to start using Twitter. And I just started plugging in keywords like Red Sox organ and Fenway organist just to see if there were people in the stands who maybe were tweeting. Um, and it turns out there were some results that came up, and there was one in particular and I remember it specifically said, I would pay to listen to the Fenway Organist cover every single song on every single volume of the Now That's What I Call Music series. You know, that's thousands of songs. I'll, I'll never get to all of those. But if you want to pick a favorite song, I'll gladly play it for you. This random Twitter user asked me to play the song Halo by Beyonce. Remember those walls I built? Well, baby, they're tumbling down. I personally love Beyonce. I may have come to it a bit later than others, but I think she's brilliant and I love listening to her songs and I love playing organ versions of her songs at ballgames and they always get a great response from fans. So when I listened to this recording and thought about how I could translate it into a ballpark organ instrumental version the first thing I heard was the bass line pretty much just four notes over and over and over and over and over again simple but effective and just kind of built layers above that chords vocal melody which is in parts fairly straightforward but then in parts a little tricky and then probably the one that's the real hook for people is um, at the end of the chorus when she just repeats the word halo over and over and over and it's like halo 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 i can see your halo halo and so on and so on
0: oh, hit me like a sun, my dark night you the only addicted to I
4: those kinds of moments in a song are especially effective at a baseball game because maybe people have been drinking and they're sort of slurring their words and they can't remember the words and if there's a single word that they can just kind of repeat over and over again it it tends to lend itself very well to rowdy sing-alongs which i find to be a fun part of baseball games Before I ever played it at a game, I just sort of made a basic little home recording of it, just out of curiosity to see how this idea might work of taking a request from a fan. The first time I played it at Fenway, I waited until the uh, angels came to town because I thought since the song is called Halo and is sort of about an angel that it would be fitting to play it when the angels came to visit. I think it was during one of the commercial breaks when the teams were switching sides and the angels were coming up to bat. People seemed to respond well to it. I noticed that people were kind of swaying in the stands and people were singing along and and people started sending me uh, messages on Twitter saying that they heard it and they recognized it and they enjoyed it. I didn't expect it to go over so well. I I hadn't yet gotten to the point where I could trust that I could take some unanticipated idea from out in the ether and turn it into something that would that would work so well. Certainly the feedback mechanism on Twitter, it's not instantaneous, but it, it's more or less instant. You know, you usually know within a couple of minutes, people are not shy about telling me which songs they like and don't like and which ones they want to hear and which ones they don't want to hear. Uh, the meanest tweet I ever got, and probably my favorite tweet that I ever got, was the one that said, shove that organ up your And I'm not sure which song that person was even talking about. Playing fans' song requests at the game has turned into one of my favorite parts about the job, maybe my favorite part about the job, because there's so much uncertainty to it. I never know from game to game or from inning to inning what songs I'll be playing next, and it's slightly terrifying but also very invigorating to have something thrown at you and have to quickly prepare it and then put it out there for a gigantic audience. But part of the reward comes from people's response to it, and particularly the individuals who have requested the song, I think it's a, oftentimes a special treat for them to come to the ball game and get to have a song, you know, cooked up on the fly for them and, and served. I guess I can thank Beyonce for that.
1: Josh Cantor, with the song that changed his life, he'll be returning to Fenway for his 14th season, tickling the Ivories this year. Follow him on Twitter at JTCantor, K-A-N-T-O-R. And please, if you're going to request a song, make it a good one. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My next guest is Tabitha Sorin. Tabitha started out her career as a reporter and a newscaster. She was with MTV News for a long time, back in the 80s and 90s. Now she's a photographer. She works mostly in fine art. Her latest project is one of her most ambitious. It's called Fantasy Life. For 15 years, Tabitha followed the draft class of the 2002 Oakland Athletics. Wherever their careers went, so did she. Only a couple of them went on to play Major League Baseball. A lot of them kind of languished in the minor league farm systems, getting traded every now and then. Some ended up coaching high school, taking other jobs. The Pictures are fascinating to look at, kind of in the same way the movie Boyhood is a bunch of baseball players instead. She collected the photos in a book that was just released this past weekend. I'm really excited to have Tabitha here with me now. Tabitha Soren, welcome to Bullseye. Thanks for coming on the show.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Uh, do you like baseball?
0: <laughs> you really know where to start, don't you? <laughs> um, no, not particularly. I don't hate it. But I I have so much of it in my life that I... Uh, it's hard to get excited about it. My, nothing really compares to watching my son play Little League games. So it's really hard when I go to a Major League game to feel the same sort of emotion as when you're watching your own child play.
1: They have more beer at Major League games.
0: Uh, that they do. <laughs> I, I just wish I could hang with those people who start drinking at 11 a.m. I really do. I've never been that person. I would fall asleep by the end of the game.
1: I've never been a drinker, and as I've become an adult, I've realized how deeply connected being a baseball fan and drinking beer continuously for four hours are for everyone else who likes baseball.
0: Right. Well, maybe that's the key. Maybe that's the secret ingredient that I'm missing. So
1: how did you come to baseball then as a subject?
0: My husband wrote a book called Moneyball, and he developed this very nice relationship with Billy Bean. They became BFFs, and Billy Bean's the manager of the Oakland A's. And so they dragged me to spring training in 2003. And I brought my camera equipment along because I was starting to head in the direction of being... A serious photographer. I hate to use the word fine art, but I wasn't I wasn't pursuing documentary work. I was trying to make pictures that hadn't been seen before. And Arizona has really great light, so I had all the equipment with me. And uh, when I met this group of guys, I, I just felt like I had fallen into a subculture that I knew nothing about. And they were as interesting to me as, you know, subway kids or, I don't know, other sort of more rock and roll edgy subcultures. Because I'm not very athletic or sporty, I found them very compelling. The other thing that was very compelling about meeting a whole group of people about to start off on a journey was that they were full of purpose and full of hope. And ignorantly, I thought I was surrounded by the winners. These people had left their junior year of college to be part of a professional baseball team. And I thought, oh my goodness, you know, it's only a matter of time till they get to the major league team. And I didn't realize that only 6% of them were going to get there.
1: To what extent did the guys that you met in 2003, in 2003, recognize the length of the odds that they faced?
0: I don't think any of them did. I don't think any of them wanted to think about the length of the odds that they faced. And if you do think about it, I don't think you will make it. I feel like you have to believe in the idea that you might touch greatness. And if it happened to Derek Jeter, why wouldn't it happen to you? Or why couldn't it happen to you? I feel like that had to be the mental state for all of them. Certainly there were people who were more confident than others, like Nick Swisher got a huge signing bonus. His dad was a major league player. He completely relates to, you know, I mean, from the second he ended up on the spring training in 2003, they called him Big League Swish. So um, there are people that seem destined to be there. But an injury could get in the way of that as well. I mean, the amount of chance... Uh, in this game or in any professional sport is enormous. And my artwork is very much about chance.
1: There were two sculpture installations when you presented the works in this book in galleries. And one of them was a tower of peanuts. Can you tell me about that?
0: Yes. I I piled thousands and thousands of peanuts into a rectangular box, a plastic box. And it was, I think, about six feet tall. And the top 10%, I painted bright, bright gold to represent the people who actually made it to the major leagues. And all the little peanuts underneath were all the people who were drafted. The funnel in baseball is purposefully wide, because they know that it's a mysterious game. They know the opportunity for an injury or a shoulder surgery to end a career. And they know actually that college pitcher or college coaches often over pitch their pitchers. And a lot of the pitchers at the end of their college season show up at spring training hurt. So that was one of that was one of the um, very uplifting and optimistic pieces of art in my show that people could stand there and at eye level see that there's only a sliver of gold peanuts in the statue. And the other sculpture that I had was a bunch of body bone parts. I wouldn't say body parts. So one of my players had shoulder surgery and they took out a bunch of bone spurs at the same time. The doctor gave him the bone spurs after the surgery, and he didn't know what to do with them, and his wife didn't want them. So they said, you know, maybe Tabitha will have some use for them, because at this point, anything (laughs) strange— His wife didn't
1: want them, like like he gave them to her for Valentine's Day, and she's like, can (laughs) I just get a box of
0: chocolates? I mean, she wasn't sentimental about them. She didn't—I guess what I should say is she didn't mind him giving them to me. So I thought, well, I'll photograph them. Maybe they'll be cool looking. And they just looked small and kind of yellow, and they weren't that interesting, and— But then a lot of my players had surgeries over the years, and a lot of them have bone spurs because the repetitive motion of baseball um, causes calcium deposits. So I just collected as many as I possibly could until they changed the law that they were no longer allowed to give body parts to (laughs) subjects. And then um, to collect more, I went to dentists and oral surgeons and, and eventually had enough small little chips of bone, that I could make a constellation of stars. I felt like the bone chips represented the sacrifice that the players give to this game, to this passion. Really, to me, it's not about the games that they play or not the sacrifice that they're making for baseball. It's the feeling that in America, we are all striving this incredible amount to do something extraordinary And anything less feels lazy and like you were selling yourself short. And we've normalized that kind of passion and that striving for greatness um, to the point where we have physical examples of it not being good for your body and we're doing it anyway.
1: We'll continue my conversation with Tabitha Soren after a quick break. She used to be a famous TV personality. She was a reporter for MTV News. She'll tell me about what it was like to go from that Art photography. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from New West Records with Nashville folk rock icon Andrew Combs' new album, Canyons of My Mind, available April 7th. The album explores themes both personal and political, celebrating the quiet struggles and satisfactions of carving out an identity and striving for change. For more information, visit andrewcombsmusic.com.
0: Hi, it's Rachel Martin with NPR News. And you know what? We're doing something new. And we want you to be part of it. It's called Up First. It's the morning news podcast from NPR. It's away for you in about 10 minutes or so. To get up to speed on the news of any given day, the most important stories, the biggest ideas, the stuff you need to know as you go through your day. Up first, it starts April 5th. You can get it at NPR One or anywhere you listen to your podcasts.
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We'll hear the rest of my conversation with Tabitha Soren in a bit. But first, did you know that Bullseye has a sister show here at Maximum Fun? It's called Pop Rocket. It's a ton of fun. Pop Rocket is a panel discussion about popular culture with some of the funniest, most insightful people in the game. And the host, Guy Branham, television comedian. He's got a new TV show on True TV called Talk Show The Game Show. Hey, Guy, what's popping on Pop Rocket this week?
4: Hey, Jesse, on this week's Pop Rocket, we're going to be figuring out why The Price is Right is still on the air for decades, and we're going to crack the code
1: of what makes a game show successful or not. Sounds like fun to me. Pop Rocket, get it where you get your podcasts. Search for Pop Rocket, because that's the name of the show. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Tabitha Soren. You might have seen her on MTV where she was a newscaster for years. Her new photography book is called Fantasy Life. It follows the 2002 draft class of baseball's Oakland Athletics. There's this pitcher for the Giants, the San Francisco Giants, named Matt Kane, who was a, a superstar pitcher and signed a huge contract. And got hurt and has never been the same since. And I heard the Giants color announcer, Mike Kruko, who's a former pitcher himself, talking about this the other day. And there's been four years that he's really struggled and has been on the team substantially because of what he once was. And Kruko told this story that essentially what happened is during his best years, his arm was so mangled that he couldn't even straighten it. He couldn't hold it straight out in front of himself um, because of bone chips in his uh, elbow. And he was pitching through incredible pain the entire time. And finally, it got to be with bone chips, they can move around, you know, and sometimes they get to the point where you literally can't use your limb because of the pain.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: And so he had surgery to remove the bone chips. And they removed the bone chips. And since he had the bone chips removed, his arm changed completely, essentially. He was For the first time since, you know, college, high school age, he was able to use his arm fully. But because of that, he was never able to reproduce his pitching motion.
0: Or so his speed?
1: Yeah, and so he's been struggling to be a consistent and effective pitcher ever since simply because he can use his arm. And I'm, not, drove... I'm not
0: surprised by that story. I have a player on in my group named Ben Fritz, and he showed up from college at, at his first spring training hurt, and he's had a couple of surgeries. And he wasn't able to get the speed back uh, that he had during college until he was about 30. And so um, – I think it might have been the Giants. The Giants had him for spring training one year, and then the next year another team invited him to spring training because his numbers were as good as they had ever been. But at that point, um, they're not going to actually use one of their picks on the 40-man to sign someone who's 30 years old or 32 years old. One of the managers told me at the very beginning, he said, yeah, you know, when we get them, they're all like melting ice cubes. So we get this like pristine, perfect specimen, and it's just all downhill from there. So um, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I think that in general, this project for me is about how unlikely events can happen at any time and change our course. And yet, you know, more generally, most of the time, my players found a certain resilience, they had to reintegrate their idea of themselves and sort of figure out, OK, if I look in the mirror and I'm not a baseball player, who am I then? And I think Americans are actually very good at that. When there's tragedy involved, we go on. It, it amazes me what people survive.
1: When these guys got to the inflection point in their career where they had to consider the fact, where circumstances dictated that they consider the fact, that they might not be the special one. How did they deal with adjusting their lives from a quest for being the best of the best to getting satisfaction out of being normal?
0: So a couple of the people who were frustrated with their station in baseball decided to quit And then some of them also decided to quit their family life at that point, too, and they got divorced. Some people had a different response. They were single. They were going to get out of baseball. They didn't have that in their repertoire anymore. They were rebuilding their identity, and they got married because they wanted some – I mean, there are a lot of reasons to get married. But I feel like one of the reasons was they wanted some family and stability that they didn't have for so long when you're in – Uh, the minor leagues. You know, I feel like some of them were a lot better than others at, at working through the feelings of not turning out to be Derek Jeter. There were people in my draft class who I asked to write an essay for this book who said to me, I haven't dealt with any of these feelings. So writing this was incredibly cathartic. Or another guy said, you know, I cried writing most of this. And this is you know 6 or 7 years out from the game a lot of them retire go back and get their college degree because the major major league baseball pays for them to finish school and then they're off in a new trajectory one's an insurance salesman one's a money manager and and it's not until they have children and that child is playing little league that the feelings come up so One player, Stephen Obenchain, who's a money money manager – he also makes money – in Chicago has five children. And when his son started playing Little League, he said it was really hard for him um, because he hadn't really watched games or gone to games. He hadn't even watched them on TV since he was released. And he was one of these people – I think he got a very big signing bonus, but then he got hit in the head with a ball and was never the same after that. So anyway – When his son started playing baseball, he decided he would force himself to coach. And once he saw the little kids show their childhood love of the game, it rekindled that feeling in him. It was no longer a professional, striving pursuit of a career. It was learning how to throw and catch and work as a team. But his essay in the book is so poignant. He says something along the lines of, um, there will come a time where my son's heart will be broken by baseball as well. And, you know, he'll either be too old, not good enough. Ugh, I wish I could read it to you. I don't have it in front of me. But um, I probably wasn't going to do it justice, paraphrasing it anyway. To read these essays that these players wrote and actually have them explain their feelings and make themselves vulnerable. It was a revelation. I've never heard athletes talk like this. And maybe it's because nobody talks to athletes after they're done with the game. I mean, unless you're Derek Jeter. So I'm happy to give them a little bit of a voice in, in an art photo book as, as niche as, as that is. I is. I've seen
1: a lot of sports photography. I went to a I went to a great sports photography exhibit in in the Brooklyn Museum last Mm -hmm. year. You know, the things that are often celebrated in sports photography are the kind of beauty and majesty of athletic achievement, which really is remarkable. I mean, to see the muscles move in in an Olympic runner is a beautiful and amazing thing. To see the vast expanse of green grass in the outfield of a major league baseball stadium with the, you know, with the crisscrosses mowed into it. That's an amazing and beautiful thing to see. Capturing that drama and beauty of sport as it's being played is very different from the kinds of things that you wanted to capture in this story about these people.
0: Well, I I just think that, I started out with a lot of those pictures in my head, too. But as an artist, I feel like there was no reason for me to add to that archive. I've seen those pictures. They're fantastic. They take a very particular skill set that I didn't actually really have. And I wanted to take pictures that hadn't been seen before and tell a new story about the effort to touch greatness. At the very beginning... There are pictures that don't look like other people's pictures because I wasn't very interested in the game. If I was in the dugout with Nick Swisher and the Cleveland Indians and they were spitting stuff onto the ground constantly, I was like, okay, well, no, okay, they're not sunflower seeds. What are they spitting down there? What? Oh, it's a big pink blob. Okay. Oh, it's double bubble. Oh, wait, there's brown stuff coming out of the double bubble. What's that? Tobacco. They put tobacco inside of bubble gum and chew on it? That's disgusting. Wait, why is the floor wet? Did somebody spill something? It's really hot and dry outside. Oh, that's not water. Oh, that's all spit. Ugh. So there could be a double play going on right outside on the field, but I'm thinking about the combination of the blue liquid with the pink bubblegum and then the brown, scratchy tobacco leaves sticking out of it. And, and then I noticed, oh, the one Nick just spit out. You can see his bite marks in the gum still. So if I was a fan, I would have been distracted by the home run, the fly ball, you know, all of the exciting stuff that's happening on the field. It took me, of you know, there's this picture of bubblegum with tobacco inside on the floor of a dugout. And it's one of my favorite pictures because when you blow that up to, you know, four by six feet, the scale of it um, says a lot about sort of ugly beauty. And I wouldn't have been able to notice that picture if I had been distracted by a home run.
1: Tabitha, you were a famous person when you were very young. Not an extraordinarily <laughs> famous person. but That's a right. I was
0: I was like a nice B-list.
1: Did you ever feel like you could recognize – any of the pressures that the baseball players were feeling from your own experience?
0: I would say that during the process of shooting this project, I was not thinking of parallels between me and the players. And it was only after um, I was formulating the exhibit in 2015 in Los Angeles did I realize that we were both, the draft class and myself, launching second acts. Really? Yeah. I I think, you know, through this 15 years of working on this project, analog photography has gone into digital photography. And so, I mean, I taught myself how to do this. So this entire time that I am shooting these people struggling. I am struggling to get the exposure right, to take a picture that hasn't been taken already, to figure out which equipment I need, what do I need to pack. It, it's all a learning experience for me, too. I'm, I'm figuring it out as I go along. And so there wasn't a lot of time for navel gazing. There wasn't a lot of time for me thinking about what this said about me. Um, I was also having children. I was thinking about the pictures, photography, art, And the players. And only at the end of it, when people start asking me questions about the project, when I'm showing it to people, did I see a parallel to me launching into a new area just as they are.
1: Have you yourself become comfortable in your life with being a relatively normal person? I mean, certainly being an artist isn't all that normal, but it's more normal than uh, being on my television when I was – sitting at home from middle school?
0: (laughs) I don't know if I could say that I am completely comfortable in my own skin. I mean, my work is is about uh, psychological states. The Running Project is about the fight-or-flight response. The oceanscapes are about panic attacks. I think that you get a little window into my psyche by looking at the work that I do. If I was completely comfortable, I don't think I'd be making great art. I think you have to have a little bit of the darkness in you. I think it also makes you work really hard. So I think that I am happy where I am, but I still am striving. And uh, I think that the art world is so arbitrary that you can't calculate too much. So there's there's no linear path, especially for women. Uh, The other reason I think I probably am not completely satisfied is because my husband, who lives in the house, is very much uh, somebody who seems to be doing victory lap after victory lap, and his success is so public (laughs) And he's such a great storyteller and explainer of complicated things. And he deserves all the success he has as far as I'm concerned. But some days I would I would be lying to you if I felt like some days I didn't feel invisible. A couple of weeks ago we went to a fancy party and I saw a man who will remain da- nameless but is associated with HBO take his place card and move it away from me and put it next to Michael – and put somebody else next, some random person next to me so he wouldn't have to sit next to me. I was just like, have you no manners? You know, I can see you. So there are any time I'm starting to feel like accomplished or really creative and fascinating, something like that happens to make me, to remind me that the world doesn't care that much about artists and they certainly and they care even less about artists who are mothers and wives.
1: Well, you can tell your husband the next time he's feeling important that I'm still mad at him for convincing all the other baseball teams to copy the A's so now the A's don't have a secret advantage anymore. Yeah,
0: you're not as mad at him as the A's are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, like cat out of the bag. <laughs>
1: If he wasn't so darn good at explaining things.
0: Well, I mean, I think the owner, the the problem there is that Billy let him see it all. But yeah, that I mean, everybody copied that trick, and there'll be some new tricks soon.
1: Well, Tabitha Soren, thank you so much for coming on Bullseye. It was really great to get to talk to you.
0: I feel the same way about you.
1: Tabitha Soren's new book is called Fantasy Life. It's a beautiful photography book of the 2002 draft class of the Oakland Athletics as they went through the following 15 years or so of their lives. It also features their reminiscences and memories of their careers and a a five-part short story by the author Dave Eggers about baseball as well. Thanks, Tabitha.
0: Thank you, Jesse.
1: Every week, we like to wrap things up on Bullseye with a culture recommendation from me, your host. It's the outshot. You know, they changed the rules this year. It used to be that if you wanted to put the man on base, you had to throw four wide. Now the manager puts up four fingers, and off he goes to first. I can't honestly say that keeps me up at night, but I understand why people care. Because baseball has always felt mythical as much as it is practical, enshrined in a sort of misty past pastoral, elegiac. It isn't particularly any of these things in the practical sense, but it feels that way. Maybe that's all right. 50 years ago, a man named Lawrence S. Ritter, who's a college professor, he taught econ at NYU, went out on the road with a tape recorder, the kind that was the size of a briefcase. He wanted to meet old timers, the ball players who played with lumpy brown balls, spitballers, spike sharpeners, guys who worked at the plant in the off season. The book he made out of their words might be the best book about American sports ever. It's called The Glory of Their Times.
3: How close could you see or did you watch the ball to the time it hit the bat? Well, I try to watch it as long as I could, you know. You watch it, you watch it and try to see it. I don't believe you really see it hit because it's traveling with tremendous speed. Some players swear that they can see that well, bat and that can. ball meet. Maybe they can. If they can, if they can, they can take the fastest camera. If so you got the camera right on it, it's pretty, pretty hard to distinguish if the ball, when the ball is hitting the bat. It's a blur, see?
1: Even back then, this was the 60s when Ritter was talking to these guys. Even back then, baseball operated on a mythical plane. Willie Mays and Sandy Koufax were punk kids. There's a story in the book, Lefty O'Doul, a guy from San Francisco. He says he was at a banquet with Leo DeRocher, who managed the Giants in the 50s. And he says someone asked him what Ty Cobb would hit today, compared to Willie Mays or Mickey Mantle. And O'Doul said, well, with that bright white ball, probably about what Mays hits, 340 or so. And really, says the other guy? That's it? O'Doul says, Well, you have to take into consideration the man's 73 years old. It was a different world when O'Doul was playing. 1900, 1920, 1930. America was turning. It wasn't subsistence farmers anymore. It was cities and immigrants and organized ball games and teams with pay and gambling and big grandstand crowds. Baseball was defined at that inflection point in our country. Another guy from the book, Chief Myers, caught Christy Mathewson in the teens, grew up on a reservation in Southern California, went to Dartmouth before he went prowl.
3: Yeah, the game was uh, not a well-thought-of game like it is today. Now, you're, uh, today, is mostly college men in there and everything, and they're admitted to the first-class hotels and all that sort of thing. We were just a second-class citizens. We were even worse. I didn't know Prior that. to that time, why well, baseball was a rowdy game. It
1: was like the sailors in Boston, <laughs> in the park, in the commons, no sailors allowed. <laughs> baseball lives in that tension between city and country. It boomed just when America was making up a story about what it thought it was. And also just as America was becoming another thing entirely. Here's the honest truth about baseball. Baseball's slow. Sometimes it's a little boring. Old people like it, especially old white men. It's better on radio than it is on TV. All that stuff is true. I grant you all of it. But there's still some magic in it. There's still Rube Marquard, estranged from his dad for a decade getting a message in the clubhouse.
3: That boy came in, he says, Ruby says there's an elderly man outside and he wants to see you. He says, he's your father from Cleveland. I said, my father wouldn't go across the street to see me, but you go out and get his autograph book and bring it in and I'll autograph it for him. So instead of bringing the book, he brought in my dad. (laughs) And we were both glad to see one another. I said, why didn't you tell me you were going to be out to the ball game? He says, I was afraid to make you nervous. I said, there were 35,000 people there. <laughs> they didn't make me nervous. Friends of my dad, when they'd see him sitting on the porch, they'd say, Well, Fred, you see what your son Rube did today? He said, Who are you talking about, Rube? He said, Your son Richard. He said, I told him baseball was no good. He even changed his name.
1: <laughs> now, look, I'm not an idiot. I know America isn't what it imagines itself to be. The story we tell ourselves about baseball, that pastoral dream, it's a myth. It's not truth. Honestly, I am glad the world has changed. I'm glad it's not 1908. I'm glad it's not 1922. There's a lot of pain and injustice in there that we'd rather forget. But when you read the glory of their times or you watch a ball game, you're not just looking backward. It's not just nostalgia. It's an in-between space, maybe a multi-space, prismatic Spanning time, bleeding a little bit into dreams. Smell that grass. Pound a glove you bought. You're on a field in Brooklyn in 1875. A farm in Kansas in 1911. Sportsman's Park, St. Louis, 1956. Candlestick in San Francisco, when the earthquake hit the World Series in '89. You're participating in a ritual. You're out of the timeline of your life, and you're in the timeline. Of America, So I say read these stories, the old-timers' stories. Watch a game. Languish in that place where the line between yesterday, today, and tomorrow gets blurry. Stretch out across an American century. Maybe the old commissioner, Bart Giamatti, put it best. Take time out for paradise. That's my outshot. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Our show recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park, beautiful Los Angeles, California. Shout out to that dude who caught a 50-pound fish last week in MacArthur Park. That is both amazing and disgusting. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is L.A. Dodgers fan Kevin Ferguson, but I hired him anyway. He's got help from Christian Duenas. Our production fellows here at MaximumFun.org are Kara Hart and Nick Liao. Our senior producer, Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music provided by Dan Wally, our thanks to Dan. Our theme music recorded by the Go Team, provided to us by them and their label, Memphis Industries, our thanks to them. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are absolutely for free. You can listen to them on the web at MaximumFun.org. Or you can grab them in your favorite podcast software. And while you are at it, please check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. We're sharing interviews. We're giving you sneak previews to upcoming Bullseye guests. and some funny, dumb stuff from the internet. We have really cranked it up over there. It's at Facebook.com slash Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. Or you can just search for Bullseye. And be careful not to click on the British darts-based game show. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.